Good morning. Uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 8. That's going to be our text for today, and I want you to follow along with me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached many years ago in England, in fact, last century. He uh, was an amazing man, great preacher, but especially uh, poured a lot of himself into younger preachers. There was one time where he was talking to his students about their countenance, just kind of how they carried themselves, especially when they preached. He said this, when you are preaching on the subject of heaven, he said, your face should light up with a heavenly glory. He said, but when you're talking about hell, he said, your everyday face will do. <laughs> Our face should light up, especially if we follow Jesus. We're studying several of these I am statements found in the Gospel of John. And every time Jesus says I am, he's using this metaphor really to say I am God. I am the Messiah. That's what he is revealing. And in John chapter 8 alone, the Pharisees are just not having it. In fact, if you kind of follow through the discourse back and forth, they interrupt Jesus 10 different times in that one chapter. They've taken offense. He keeps saying, I am this, I am that. And, and they know what he's saying, and they're not buying it. In fact, toward the end of the chapter, we're going to start there and work back. Look on the screen in verse 53. They asked Jesus a very pointed question. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So Jesus, understanding where they are, what they're thinking, pushes them even further. Look what he says, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's like they don't even know how to respond to that statement. So they turn to sarcasm. Look at 57. So they said that the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham. And you can imagine them kind of smirking, elbowing each other, thinking that they've got him with this. Then in verse 58, Jesus lays it on them. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And with that, they can't take it anymore. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out in the temple. But what led up to this? Why was this the breaking point, if you will, that they're ready just to pick up stones? What was going on? What had been said? Well, our text is John 8, verse 12. Just before this, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want us to spend a few moments kind of unpacking this, trying to understand exactly what Jesus meant by these words. And to fully appreciate the metaphor, it's, under, it's good to understand why he said this. So let's kind of begin with what we know about light. Why would he use that word? So just kind of remind us of what we already know. First, light reveals. We know this just about living. Life enables us to see things that were there all alone, but because we have light, we can see it. Sometimes we will say, it was so dark I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. We know it's there, but we can't see it. Darkness conceals, but light reveals. Without light, we can't see anything. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it all things are seen. Listen to John 3, 21. But whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And then Ephesians 5, 13. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. And by the way, this whole idea of Jesus being light is why some don't want to have anything to do with him. 
or his people. Because his light shines a light on decisions that they make and failures, things they don't want to give up. So light reveals. Number two, light gives life. Light is necessary for life itself. It sets our biological clock. It, it helps our brains to be able to determine color. It supplies the energy for things to grow. Speaking of Jesus, John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, number three, light scatters darkness. In Scripture, oftentimes light would be a metaphor for, for sin or for spiritual blindness or, or sometimes even death. John 1, verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then light also, number four, gives warmth. And we know that, and we appreciate that. Light bulbs get hot. The sun warms the earth. In the Bible, warmth is often equated with the comfort of God. Look at Isaiah 60, verse 20. Your sun shall no more grow down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And look at Ecclesiastes eleven seven. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And then number five, light provides guidance. Light provides guidance. There's a story of an older woman at a busy intersection, and she was kind of slow and feeble and wasn't sure how she was going to be able to cross the road. And then this well-dressed young man came up and put his elbow out, and he said, may I cross the street with you? Well, she said, sure, and grabbed his elbow, but crossing the street was a disaster. They zigged and they zagged, and they stepped right in front of cars, and they honked, and they barely made it to the other side, and she was just, just couldn't stand it. She said, you call that help? You would think you were blind. He said, wait, wait, what? I am blind. That's why I asked if I could walk with you. <laughs> light provides guidance. Look at Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. So just this quick review of light reminds us, if Jesus is light, Jesus reveals. Jesus gives light. Jesus scatters darkness. Jesus gives warmth. And he provides guidance. But what really does the Bible say? about light. Well, the very first thing God created, you remember, as the Bible opens, Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and, the, the, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then you remember when God was identifying himself to Moses? Moses, what's your name? He says, I am. And part of illustrating that were a lot of ways that he illustrated his power, both to Moses and to the people of Egypt. There's one time where God literally turns out the lights on Egypt. Look at Exodus 10, verse 21 and 23. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. And then notice what it says. But all the children of Israel had light where they lived. Imagine that. That's power over light. And after showing the Israelites his unlimited power, God did not abandon them, even during their time of wandering for those 40 years. Remember? During the day, the cloud, and at night, that pillar of fire. Exodus 13, verse 21, The Lord went before them by day a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. They didn't have to be afraid of the dark. God was always with them. They just opened their eyes and they saw it there, His presence. 
And I imagine as Jesus was declaring himself to be the light of the world, his listeners knew exactly what he was talking about. This reference to God having power over the light, even equating himself to this pillar of fire that was with the Israelites then. It's over and over again. God is referred to as light in Scripture. A few more. Psalm 76, verse 4. You are resplendent with light, more majestic than mountains, rich with game. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, the Jews know that the coming Messiah was referred to as light in Scripture. Like Daniel 2, verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. So anytime Jesus would make an I am statement, again, he's declaring himself to be God. And so when he says, I am a light, he's basically saying, I'm the Messiah. I am the promised one. And we mentioned God's first recorded act in Scripture was to create light. Kind of fast forward to the other end of the time spectrum. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And then Revelation 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. So whenever Jesus is declaring himself to be the light of the world, we can appreciate that more when we just think about what we know about the properties of light and then understand how throughout Scripture God is called light. The coming Messiah was referred to light. But what about the Gospel of John? What does John's Gospel say about light? I put this on the screen and also on your outline because this is worth noting. The word light is used by John 24 times in this gospel. 24 times. In the very opening words, John 1 verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So let's look at the Bible and understand this I am statement, what he's meaning by this. Because before he said, I am the light of the world, he had said a couple of other I am statements. In fact, if you've got your Bible there open to chapter 8, if you flip back to chapter 6, you'll note you may already have this marked where he says, I am the bread of life. And he said this as these people were remembering the manna that God had given their forefathers for those 40 years while they're wandering in the desert. And the context of all this is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the setting. In the previous chapter, John 7 he attends the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's important. I'm going to share more about that in a moment. But one part of this Feast of Tabernacles is the pouring out of water onto the ground. They were commemorating the water that came from the rock in Exodus chapter 17. And so as the people are watching this commemoration, this pouring out of water, remembering what happened back to, to their people when they were coming out of the land of uh, uh, Egypt, Jesus says this, John 7, 37. Take note what he says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so then now in chapter 8, 
He makes this statement, I'm the light of the world, referencing that pillar of fire that was also with the people during those 40 years in the desert. So Jesus is very intentionally associating himself with these works of God with their forefathers. I am, in chapter 6, the bread of life. I am, in chapter 7, the water of life. I am, in chapter 8, the light of life. It's like boom, 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 one after another. And the Pharisees are just hearing this all in the context. And this is why this is important of the Feast of Tabernacles. In Leviticus chapter 23, God had initiated this annual feast to help them remember what happened to their people those 40 years. Now, I put this on the screen. There are two things that make this celebration different from other annual feasts. If you remember, there were several feasts that they would participate in every year to remember parts of their history. But this one was a little peculiar in two ways at least. One, for seven days, the entire nation would camp out in booths is the word you'll read in your English version. Really, it's like a tent. Because, again, to commemorate that they were nomadic people. They were moving around. That was their home for the 40 years to remind them of their hardship. They weren't quite yet at the promised land. So that's one part. The second part is on the opening night of the celebration, these four huge candelabras lit the temple. Now, how do we know this? Because John's gospel, he does mention that it's the Feast of Tabernacles, But he doesn't tell us about these particular lamps or these candelabras. Well, if you study Judaism, you're familiar with the word Mishnah. In addition to the law of Moses, the scriptures, there was the oral Torah. It's what they would think, the the Orthodox Jews, that God spoke this to Moses himself, saying this is what the scriptures mean. This is how you apply it. And so this was passed down through the generation. That is until the destruction of the second temple. So at that time, by the second century, they decided to write it down. And the first part of that is called the Mishnah. Now, Jesus' remark is specifically suited to this feast. Because I want to read a portion of what the Mishnah explains is going on. Like all these these Jews have been participating for these seven days. There were four golden menorahs with four golden bowls at the top of each. And four ladders leading to a bowl. Four strong young priests would climb with pitchers, each holding nine liters of oil. Think about almost two and a half gallons. So this big pitcher of oil, which they would pour into the four bowls. They lit the menorahs. There was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the light of the festivities. Pious men and men of good deeds would dance around the menorahs, lit with the torches in their hands, singing song and praises. And the Levites played harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and innumerable other musical instruments. Now the mission is the first part of that. The second part of that, the Gemara, says this, those menorahs, those four candelabras, you will, 75 feet high. So imagine what's going on here. For seven days, they've had this festival They're coming out in tents. They're coming to the temple and they're seeing these four huge, seven-story high candles lit. Think of like stadium lights. One author said the whole city was illuminated by this. David Stern explains in the Jewish New Testament commentary, throughout the week the lights burned bright as the wisest and Israel's men danced before the Lord and sang songs of joy while the people watched and waited 
Scriptures like Isaiah 9 were read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. And what's going on here is these people are, uh, they're just amazed at, at God's amazing gesture that he left heaven, came down, and was with his people in this cloud at day and this fire at night. But this is where the meaning of the feast really plays into why Jesus said this at this very moment. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Leviticus 23. God explains why. Why have this feast day? Why have this feast of tabernacles? Look what he says. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, most English translations use that word booth. Really what it means there is tent. In the tabernacle, if you remember, it's really nothing more than a big tent. In fact, that tabernacle is the same word here. John used the same word opening his gospel, John 1, 14, talking about Jesus as the word became flesh and dwelt. There's the word, dwelt, tabernacled, pitched his tent. That's what he's saying there. God came through us through his son and lived with us, pitched his tent with us. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' statement, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then how many times abide is used? Abide is the same word here. It means live in, live with, dwell among. But now John tells us in John chapter 7, 37, that Jesus makes this statement, I'm the light of the world, on the last day of the feast. Why does that matter? Why didn't he say it on the first day of the feast? Why was it important that he would say it on the last day of the feast? Well, see, this feast in the calendar year fell after the harvest. Most who research our annual Thanksgiving think the Puritans went back all the way to the Feast of Tabernacles. That after the harvest, giving thanks for God for taking care of us. So that's kind of where this comes from. But every year for them, the feast reminded them of God's, God's past blessing that he took care of our forefathers for 40 years. Gave them everything they needed to eat, everything they needed to drink, and a light to guide their path. So some of it was a commemoration of what he did, but it was also a reminder that the Messiah had not yet come. He was coming. He was going to be the light of the world, but he had not yet come. And this is when Jesus, think about this, stands up next to the menorah and declares he's the Messiah. Look again at our text, John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the amazing thing about this statement. So many amazing things. Jesus says, I am the light. But he also says, you are the light. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And as far as I know, this is the only I am statement that Jesus said, I am and so are you to his followers. He didn't say, I am the vine. You are the vine. He didn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. But here he does say, I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. 
I think we need to ask why. Why did he say that? Now, I don't think we're lights the way Jesus is, but we can reflect the true life. But again, I want you to get the picture here. The, the, the temple had been illuminated for seven days. This bright light. Everybody is celebrating. And then the temple goes dark. The lights are out because the Messiah had not yet come. And then Jesus, at that moment, says, I am the light of the world. What a teachable moment. The Messiah had come. So what does this amazing statement mean to our lives? Three things. Let me close with this. First, I think this applies to his followers with a sense of mission. This reminds us of our mission. Jesus never said, I'm the light of the church. He didn't say to you, you are the light of the church. He says, I'm the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. God is talking about his son it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And do you remember when Jesus was born? There's the old man in the temple. Simeon is his name. We don't know a lot about him. But he's so grateful that he lived long enough to see Jesus being born. And he says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. So what's God's plan? God intended for the light of Christ to go to all the world. The light has come. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And if you are his followers, he says, you are the light of the world. Because the world is still in deep darkness. Some have never heard of Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. And we can't make people accept the light. But we can shine the light to them in a way that they can see that he is the true light. So this I am statement kind of reminds us, folks, we're on a mission. We're on a mission to be the light of the world. But then secondly, it applies to his followers with a sense of urgency. we got a sense of urgency here. In this chapter that follows, chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. Again, a lot of symbolism there. But look what John 9, verses 4 and 5 says. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. We understand the way he's using the word light there. He's talking about a deadline, a timeline. He's not going to be here forever. That's what he's referring to here. Now, for us, we don't use light to talk about a deadline because we've got electricity. We've got batteries, and light doesn't stop us. We just keep going. But we understand what he's saying here, the limitation of time. Jesus was teaching this opportunity is not always going to be available. We need a sense of urgency. Now, we need to do this. Look at John verse 12, verse 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. To be a son of the light... 
you must believe. But Jesus also said, walk in the light, lest darkness overtake you. Because we also understand the power of darkness. The darkness can deceive, and it can overwhelm, and darkness can overtake you. I believe one of the struggles for those of us who have seen the light is to sometimes go in a place of darkness and not be bothered by it. Even grow accustomed to it. There's a story about a minister who accepted a work in a rough part of the inner city. Nobody wanted to be there. And one time, just early on, he was looking out his window, and he, he saw everything just from his window, prostitution and, and drug deals and poor choices and gangs, and, and it was just overwhelming to him, all kinds of darkness. And he had just this wave of emotion, and, and he just started weeping at just all the darkness that he saw. And another person from church came in and said, it's okay, you don't, you don't have to cry. After a while, you get used to it. And he said, that's why I'm weeping. I don't want to get used to it. And that can be our challenge as well, that we can get so accustomed to seeing darkness all around us that we don't even see it. It doesn't break our hearts. The Bible says darkness hates the light. And it's a tragic day when the light doesn't hate the darkness. But we've gotten used to it. Just accept it. Well, the name just doesn't just give us a sense of mission in urgency, there's one more, a sense of confidence. A sense of confidence. John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you realize that you cannot put the light out? Cannot overcome it. Cannot. You know, we got these big old windows in here, so even if the lights were out, on a cloudy day, we can still see. In this big old room, if we had no windows and turn out all the lights, just one person struck a match, we could all see it. This whole room full of darkness cannot overpower that one small light. Darkness thought it could. I think the prince of darkness thought he had done just that when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. Victory. We defeated him. We've snuffed out the light. And the irony is the light they murdered on that day has never shone brighter. Because his followers were listening. They remembered his words when he stood in that dark temple and said, I am the light of the world. And they remember his words when he says, you are the light of the world. And he's given us a mission with a sense of urgency and confidence to be the light, to share the light. Here's one more bit of information. Not sure what to do with this. I mentioned that John's gospel talks about the light 24 times. But if you remember when Jesus died on the cross, a lot of things happened, an earthquake, the, the temple veil split. A lot, lot of things happened. People came back from the grave. But do you remember that period of darkness over the whole earth? Remember that? Matthew talks about it. Mark talks about it. Luke talks about it. John's gospel is so full of light, he doesn't mention it. I'm not sure why. Or maybe we do know why. 
John's gospel is all about the light. He understood when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He understands the prince of darkness and the power that is there. And he wants to make sure all of us know that darkness cannot overcome the light. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That's why we stress about being completely committed followers of Jesus. That is who he is, and that is who we are to become. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to say yes to the one who says, I am the light, because he wants to do all those things we know that that light does. In addition, he wants to save your soul. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for you, confess that to this whole crowd. We would love just amen with you with that and to celebrate as you have your sins washed away in baptism. You change your life. You turn to Him. The Bible calls that repentance. Let Him, let him make you that new creation. And then every day you get up and you make a decision to follow the light of the world. And as you go about your life, You've got a mission, a sense of urgency, and confidence to know that he's going to shine through you. If we can pray for you in any way, would you come as we stand and sing?